0: Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spirits Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is David A. Friedman, Associate Dean for Strategic Initiatives and Professor of Law at Willamette University College of Law. We will discuss his article, Do We Need a Bar Exam for Experienced Lawyers?, which will be published in the UC Irvine Law Review. So welcome back to the show, David. It's good
1: to be back. Thank you for having me, Brian.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure. So this is a um, fun, fascinating, timely, and uh, provocative article, I think. I I wonder if you could start the conversation by just talking a little bit about the events that precipitated you to get interested in this question. And that led you to the uh, ever so modest proposal that you ultimately make in the concluding chapter of the article.
1: As, as some folks know, um, early in the summer of, or the late spring and summer of, um, of 2020, we had a um, a national conversation slash dialogue slash brawl slash fight about um, whether or not there should be diploma privilege with respect to admission to the bar or whether the bar exam should be um, administered under um, COVID-19 circumstances or whether it should be delayed or delivered in an electronic format and we just had this mess. In Oregon, our Supreme Court decided to grant a one-time diploma privilege um, to graduates of Oregon law schools. And I thought, well, uh, you know, other states really didn't follow um, by and large that, that model. And when this happened, it was somewhat unexpected and and a pretty radical thing. I expected that other states might follow. They didn't. But the one thing that I didn't anticipate, and I think that um, a lot of folks and maybe Twitter is an unrepresentative group of people to follow and react to this, but I don't think a lot of people appreciated how the legal community and how the established legal community reacted to this news. There was a lot of pushback that I received from lawyers um, in Oregon um, who essentially said, well, this is a free pass. There shouldn't be an exception uh, just because of COVID. Um, the bar exam is is there to protect the public, and um, I started to think about it and to think about well, what what is protecting the public? Um, what does that really mean? And the one pushback that I kept getting was, well, the bar exam measures competence and protects consumers and ensures that new lawyers are competent, to which my response was, how do we know that you're still competent? And if the bar exam is the right measure, and, you're, and I got a lot of direct, but that the bar exam covers the right content, lawyers need to know that breadth of content and that depth of content and that particular skill set. I said, well, if you accept that as true, and that's if you accept that as true, why wouldn't it apply to all lawyers you know something like depending on how you measure it 3 to 10% of lawyers are new lawyers what about the other 80 to 90% who are working on high stakes stuff if you believe that the bar exam really does measure competence then why not administer it at regular intervals just to check up on people and this isn't in the paper but in some of these conversations i've had while lawyers have been catching their breath about that argument I said, why not post the scores? You know, and they said, Well, that's out. I said, You ever go to a restaurant and see A, B, C, D on the why not do that? You're a tax lawyer, you've been practicing for 30 years. My clients know they said, My clients know how great I am. I'd say, well, then you should be confident in taking the test, and I'm sure it will say that you got one of the highest bar exam scores. And let's just say that I what was good about having this dialogue, especially with people I had a relationship with, was that it got them to a position where they said, okay, um, I'm actually comfortable moving forward and continuing to hire the graduate of yours that I was going to hire anyway. Um, They they would push back and say things to me like, what do I tell my clients about hiring this person? Um, If they ask me whether or not they pass the bar, I said, well, you remember that piece of litigation that you were bragging about that that company handed you and they entrusted you with it? Did they trust your judgment there? Well, yeah. Well, would they trust your judgment about who you hired as a first-year associate? Well, I suppose they would. I said, of course they would. So what purpose does the bar exam really serve? And I wanted to push that as a general question, but I wanted to tee up the question by getting lawyers to consider whether or not the bar exam does what they think it does and what the conventional wisdom out there um, and what the industry around the bar exam thinks it does.
0: So so I, I take it that the sort of prevailing wisdom uh, about the justification of the bar exam then is that we need a method for measuring minimum, minimum competence to practice law, and that the bar exam uh, is at least one way and the, the best way we have available of, of achieving that goal. Did you find any evidence to support the idea that the bar exam effectively does measure minimum competence or protect the public, say, from attorney misconduct?
1: Well, what I found was that most misconduct, you no, know, there's some causal issues here. But if you're concerned about lawyer misconduct, most lawyer misconduct takes place later in careers, and it doesn't have a whole lot to do with substantive knowledge of the law generally. It has to do with what I would informally refer to as keeping your stuff together. I know this is a family podcast, but you know, keeping your stuff together, so... Um, all of the things ab- about uh, failure to communicate, um, um, competence, actually violating the actual ABA or the, the what states have adopted their equivalent of the model rules of competence, failure to communicate, kind of things that force people to fall apart. And it, actually, in essence, I, I think if you gave any of those folks a standardized test of any kind, um, it might force them to to reckon with whether or not they have those non-cognitive skills together in order to avoid um, the types of things that lead to malpractice, neglect of matters, failure to communicate, general competence, that sort of thing.
0: Are there costs then associated, you think, with administering the bar exam?
1: Oh, they're huge. Um, the, um, The opportunity cost of taking the bar exam Delaying careers, um, even if successful, delaying careers four to six months, if you if you take a look at just that opportunity cost alone of delaying people being able to work and, um, and actually even thinking about how that ripples throughout a career, starting a career even four to six months later and multiplying it across the profession, you're keeping um, – I mean, just the lost value alone could be billions of dollars, I think – Um, we had a Twitter debate estimating could it be between $1 and $2 billion a year in value and opportunity cost, expenditure, whatnot. That's a pretty significant investment. You're also taking lawyers out of the pool who could serve the public. And if this is about serving the public, not just protecting the public, but serving the public, what service are we doing by delaying people to practice law by making sure that they can answer multiple choice questions? before they're able to do it. It seems like the bar exam might be separate and apart and highly costly from the other goals. Oh, and if we're concerned about competence and we're concerned about regulating the profession, we're doing all of this investment upfront uh, or, or, or committing all of, if you want to call it an investment. Um, of opportunity costs, of, of of administrative costs, but then we let people go for 20, 30, 40 years and don't check in on them unless they've made a mistake. And it seems to me that that's a really uneven way if you're going to regulate a profession to to regulate a profession. You should be, if you're going to do that, you should be checking in on people later on if you think that this is the right way to do it.
0: So I understand there's at least some evidence of at least a kind of mild correlation between bar exam performance and uh, ultimate uh, lawyer lawyer discipline. Do you think that reflects anything about the bar exam itself it, Do you think there's any reason to be kind of thinking about that as a potential problem or something we might want to be watching out for in terms of perhaps predicting attorney competence? Like, what should we do with any of that data?
1: Well, I I think that what we know from a lot of the studies is that if you look at how important state bars think the bar exam is, they do a lousy job of collecting data uh, that would enable us to predict how people did on bar exams and then what the ultimate uh, what the ultimate outcomes are. And if you consider that a lot of discipline takes place 10, 20, 30 years later, it's hard for the bar exam performance to predict how an individual would perform. Now, um, I don't want to totally uh, characterize their work, but Rob Anderson and Derek Muller wrote actually quite an excellent piece laying out the challenge Uh basically saying we do have to weigh the costs and benefits of, and they were looking at lowering the cut score in California. We, we do, they have to look at whether or not there would be repercussions. Um, but, but Rob and Derek are pretty careful about saying that you, you, you have to look at other factors uh, about whether or not you're sacrificing other things by, um, by closing the you know well I don't want to overcharacterize it but there are other things that are that are in play other than just minimizing malpractice much of which not all of which but much of which takes place further out you know one of the things that that others have pointed out is well gee the bar exam is one way to keep law schools honest that um, that if law schools can't produce graduates that pass the bar exam they're just going to turn into diploma mills and let everyone in and I think, well, okay, that's fine. Um, the ABA um, could be more thoughtful about learning outcomes and ways to measure learning outcomes, and work with the profession to see what's actually important and what matters, and assess law schools on a different basis. Why this has become the tool? Well, I think it's it's somewhat self perpetuating, and we have um, we have institutions that are set up to. Uh, that are highly invested in, in keeping this metric and this model together. And some of it, some of it's institutional, but some of it's mindset. I, I think that a lot of the practicing bar has the, the mindset of, I did this, I passed it, I have personal value that I attach to that. And look, you see this in the Twitter replies, which is my favorite source of information uh, for everything. Um, in fact, I thank Twitter. It's the only thing that I thank in my star footnote. Is I thank the entirety of Twitter for sparking this discussion. That y- you see that there's some there's some validation that's kind of going on here. I had to go through this. My colleagues had to go through this. If that felt right to me, it should be right for for other folks. When I get lawyers past that in my dialogue to get them to think about the other things that they're complaining about, which they might be right to complain about, which is I want lawyers who are practice ready. I want lawyers who know what a demand letter is. I want lawyers who can draft interrogatories. I want lawyers who can hit the ground running with practical skills. I say, well, do you think that gearing us up to teach how to answer questions about common law crimes in a multiple choice format, is that what you want us to be doing in law school? Do you want us to be teaching what you think is important and what might be important? And there's been some great work done by um, uh, Deborah Merritt and some others on this about what lawyers think is important. Do you want us to be teaching towards that or do you want us to be teaching about how do you game a multiple choice test that actually can be gamed and that we know that one of the factors, uh, there's a recent study that just came out about this, um, that one of the, fa- the, the dominant factor in, in changing your your Ability to pass the bar is the amount of time you can put in. And the amount of time you can put in is often also a sub function of how many people do you have in your household? Um, how much quiet time do you have? How many resources do you have? I mean, all, all of these things, if you add them up, you realize that the bar exam is an imperfect measure. It doesn't quite get the profession what it's asking us to do. We could get law schools to do different things if you change the bar exam. Oh, and by the way, this bar exam that you're declaring is so sacred, it, the NCBE is changing it anyway. They're dramatically changing it anyway. So you're defending something that's going to change anyway. The question is how much further should it change? That's what we're really talking about at this point. So the, the NCBE and their, and their spokespeople, and I'm using air quotes as I'm talking to you, the folks that they've brought out to defend it, um, are vehemently defending an exam that they are also radically changing. So they're trying to do a whole lot of different things at the same time. And I keep checking back on uh, Judith Gunderson's blog and there's only one post. So I'm waiting to see um, how that public relations initiative plays out.
0: Well, it strikes me too that, I mean, to the extent we're administering the bar as a gateway to the legal profession, it seems like the people who are subject to the bar are the ones who already kind of have the most and most direct oversight of of their practice, right? I mean, most attorneys don't go out and immediately become like solo practitioners working on their own. They'll go to a law firm or go to a government agency and have supervisors who are more experienced like watching out to make sure that they don't make any mistakes. On some level, it seems like we ought to be least worried about competence questions uh, when it comes to the most heavily reviewed and monitored attorneys. Do we have any other effective mechanisms for more senior attorneys who are themselves the supervisors to to make sure that that they're still kind of up to snuff, as it were?
1: We, We really don't. And I get into that a couple of examples in my paper of that, that you can Really, what you have instead of diploma privilege, we're so concerned about things like diploma privilege that what we're forgetting about is bar exam privilege. Bar exam privilege begins when you pass the bar and you're sworn in, and then you have, in essence, a lifetime pass. As long as you haven't been disciplined, you haven't been suspended, or as long as you can for the rest of your life until your dying breath you can pretty much practice law unless somebody intervenes and you can do a lot of harm in that intervening period. And it's difficult, you know, as much as I've, as I've talked about the practicing bar being an obstacle, I've had, I've had a number of lawyers tell me this is a pretty good idea Um, And actually, I I say, well, don't take the idea literally. It really fundamentally is a thought exercise. I should have probably said that more clearly earlier in our conversation. It's a thought exercise to try to get people to think about it. But as part of this thought exercise, they said, this would actually be, there's a guy in my office, if you told him that he had to sit down and answer 200 multiple choice questions about seven areas of the law, he'd say, I'm thinking I'm going to hit the golf course. You know, it's probably about time uh, for me to to move on. And he wouldn't necessarily say that this is why, but this would be a great way of nudging people. But there really isn't a way to test people's cognitive abilities, which change over time, um, or, or their organizational abilities, or if they just kind of turn. I mean, Brian, you and I are we're not exactly conformists. I mean, we sort of are because what we do, but we're sort of not. But there are, there's a limitation to what nonconformists can do in the law. And nonconformists who reach the level where, as I point out in one paper, they dress up as Thomas Jefferson when they go to court. Um, we can. It's hard to imagine that person tolerating there being a right or wrong answer on a bar exam question. So it's hard for me to envision them having the discipline to be able to conform to something like that. So I think if you really wanted to push this idea, it could serve that kind of function or we could find other mechanisms for monitoring folks and and, um, perhaps finding ways to be uh, taking better care of each other as a profession. You know, we don't have, we have tremendous problems with substance abuse and depression, Um, and we talk about them, we try to provide all these mechanisms, yet we don't really seem to be making much progress. Testing would probably enhance the stress level for people, and maybe that's not the best way of going about it, but maybe forcing this discussion of the fact that lawyers who are entering their third or fourth decade are having a lot of problems, what are we doing about it? Um, Because a lot of those things are probably the things that are leading to malpractice, which is what's leading clients to be – to suffer the harm uh, from, from, from their – you could call them misdeeds or you could call it their negligence.
0: Well, what about the consumers then of, of legal services? I mean what kind of information, if any, do they have – that would be relevant to these questions of you know lawyer competence and the potential for attorney misconduct and to the extent there is information out there that is available
1: to consumers how how reliable is it well con- consumer information about lawyers is just terrible and um we know this we probably intuitively know know this but it's really hard especially in in the consumer sector for people to actually understand well who's a good lawyer and at what price should i pay them the it's difficult to even go to peer reputation sites to 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 find out whether or not the person reviewing the lawyer actually understood what it is that they were getting it's professional services it's a little bit like like anything else um, in, in, that, in that realm. But one of the problems is that lawyers tend to advertise themselves based on experience. Um, Jim Hawkins and uh, Renee Kanaki uh, have a, put together a great paper where they actually looked at lawyer advertising. And one of the attributes that they advertise the most is experience. Why do lawyers advertise that way? Probably be, my theory, my, I come from a consumer law background, is because it works. If experience is the signal, then experience is a really valuable thing. Therefore, if we really want to ensure that consumers are protected and have good information, we should expect more out of experienced lawyers. The experienced lawyer shouldn't just be competent or minimally competent. They should be supremely competent, and they should be able to take a harder test to demonstrate their their competence. It's kind of how it fits into my model, because if you look at how lawyers are evaluated, the very cream of the crop are evaluated by their peers. That's what you'll see really coming out of Martindale, and um, a lot of these entities have consolidated. But Super Lawyers has a really good structure. So if you're if you're in the market for a six hundred dollar an hour family lawyer, you might have a pretty good idea of who is respected in, in the market. But if you're looking, if you're a consumer that's just looking for someone, you're going to go on Google. You're going to talk to friends. It's very hard to figure out um, who's good and and why or what that really means. But a test, you know, all these lawyers who think that the test is a wonderful objective measure about minimum minimum confidence about how to enter the profession, well, they certainly, if they care about protecting consumers, which is what a lot of people say, that this is about consumer protection, should be enthusiastic about creating a data set for consumers to access that says, you want to hire this person? Bear in mind that when you're paying them, they had a score of, I'll make up a score of 75. This other lawyer across town has an 86, but they're more expensive. You choose. It would be interesting. Is it doable? Sure. If people, if if we wanted the profession to evolve that way, we could do it. But of course, politically, nobody wants to do this. I've had people beg me not to write this paper when I talk, told, them about, told them about it. Um, I'm going to Probably do a little bit of promotion, but I have to be careful here because I don't want people to get the message here that I'm endorsing the bar exam or that I'm really, I'm asking, this is one of the few papers I've written with a question mark at the end of it. I'm really asking, do we need a bar exam? Does it do what we think it does? And how do we want to regulate the profession? If we're really talking about protecting consumers or or giving them information, is this the best way of doing it? I want to provoke that dialogue. I want to provoke that thought going forward, you know, for the profession itself, what, what are they expecting of new lawyers? We know what they're saying. Does the bar exam incentivize legal education to provide them with the lawyers that they think we need? Oh, and by the way, to the side of all this, we have a huge access to justice problem in this country. So most of the problems that people have with lawyers in this country is that they don't have a lawyer or they don't know that they even need a lawyer. So if you think about the scope of the problem they're only thinking about one piece of it the part that they're familiar with not the broader piece of it so this is part this is a window into what i call the big problem which is which is access to justice across the spectrum in this country um a one size fits all mentality that the lawyer at the at the big law firm in new york should be taking the same test as as the lawyer who's going to enter into a small town family law practice, you know, on the Oregon coast, for example, um, we can probably do better than what we're doing now, and that's the question uh, that I'm asking. And and there are so many different sub dialogues that this has promoted, um, and you know, it's been fun to put this idea out there on Twitter and 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 hash it out with people and get their feedback on it and challenge them. It's you know, Twitter can be a terrible place, but It can also be a great place to start dialogues about things. And I've started to do this with continuing legal education as well. started to put that out there. So do you think this is a good thing? And lawyers generally are annoyed by continuing continuing legal education, for example. And there's not a ton of data out there to show that it works. There's a little bit, but not a ton of data. There's a lot of self-congratulatory literature by the people who implemented it. They feel good about it. I guess it can't hurt, but... What does it really cost? Costs something. Not as much as the bar exam, but it costs something. So I think we need to take a look at what we're doing and ask why we're doing it. And what, you know, to take a cue from Rob Anderson and Derek Muller, ask what the costs and benefits really are. And it's not to say there's zero benefit from having a bar exam, but to look at it in context.
0: Are there currently any forms of post bar exam? test-based evaluation of attorney competences and if so how and how well do they work well
1: we do know that we do know that there are <laughs> there are some famous examples that we've heard of here and there um, of this where sometimes the remedy for um, a law- for lawyer misconduct or the punishment I should say not really the remedy the punishment is that you have to take and pass the MPRE again. And you kind of wonder what's that causally connected to. Um, most lawyer mistakes, um, if they're intentional, they know darn well what they did. It was something akin to stealing. What does the MPRE do? Um, it reminds them to choose the second most conservative option on, you know, a hundred questions. Um it's not quite clear what that's serving except as a shaming function, I I, I suppose. Um, Is there any evidence that that works? The numbers are really small on all this stuff. The numbers are really small about character and fitness predictors as well. That's a whole other area that we could go into. Um, Does character and fitness serve as a pre-screening mechanism to prevent people from even going to law school? Or does it serve a function at all after people have gone through law school and gone through that of, predicting what they're going to do. And that's a whole other topic. It's adjacent to this. And I do do discuss it because we're talking about what the factors are that predict malpractice, but th- there's such a small number um, of, of things that we don't know. There's a whole lot that we don't know, but that doesn't mean that we're not willing to, to like force people to go through. Uh, you could talk about the personal aspect of this, that we're forcing people to go through hell. Okay. Um, law school isn't exactly always, a, a, you know, a cakewalk, and you you got to work your way through learning and your early years of practice of law. But how much of this is necessary? And is it really necessary after requiring people to go through four years of a bachelor's degree, graduating successfully, um, taking an entrance exam to get in, probably to get into that college, taking an entrance exam to get into law school? Which, by the way, we also know, if we're to believe the test prep companies you buy their services, you can do better on those exam scores. You go through three years of law school, and then you've got to wait another six months and take this other test to practice. Kind of strikes me as a funny time to intervene. And if we were to design a system from scratch for regulating lawyers and training lawyers, would we do it the way that we have it now? And I'm talking about the entirety of the system. And I'll get responses across the spectrum that just say, well, law should be an undergraduate major. And I'm thinking, okay, well, let's look at all these things. It's fair game, but we've never really had that national dialogue. COVID has forced a national dialogue on a lot of things, ranging from working at home from home to you name it. And this is another area where I think the dialogue got accelerated and hopefully um, there will be a shakeout to the benefit. Of folks on, on this dimension, that it might be, uh, there might be a rethinking uh, that we're able to come to about all, all of these things. So one question I had
0: was, like, if we imagine a world in which the legal profession decided to sort of regulate Its own competence on a kind of ongoing basis in some manner akin to what you suggest, rather than purely just having a a barrier to entry. What do you think that would ultimately look like? In other words, to the extent we as a profession would ask ourselves, what should and could we be doing to sort of evaluate? The competency to practice and the knowledge level of more senior attorneys who've been in the field for a while, in a way that would like ensure the competence of the profession, of the profession, but also provide information to consumers. Maybe I don't know, whatever. Like, what, do you, what? What's your sense of what that might actually look like in practice?
1: Oh, it's I. You know, I p- tried to puzzle my way through this because I'm actually trying to come up with an, an answer to that question. And if it's not something like an exam, which is a clunky, blunt instrument that measures exam taking ability and not and not necessarily skills, what you know, what do you do? Um, every every potential solution comes with other problems and trade-offs. So I've thought about peer evaluation systems. Um, we we have private companies that are doing it to to kind of market and sell the data, right? So you're Avvo Martindales um, are doing that and your um, and your super lawyers are doing things like that. But we have this whole middle bracket that isn't focused on competence, but we just, just don't have any data. If we created a peer review system where lawyers really rated each other um, in an aggressive and kind of honest way or a required way, we might be able to to do something there, but then we might replicate all sorts of terrible biases that we already have. We all know that certain groups are going to be, are are going to be viewed differently. We, I mean, we can't even begin to get into the literature about bias that might enter into the system that way. Um, We might just need a combination of fail-safes. One, I did propose to, one person that said, you know, we could have a super lawyers and then a not so super lawyers list to really predict the bottom. Like, you have to rank the top five lawyers in your area and then the bottom five lawyers. And then and the person's like, oh my God, that would be that would be like the worst thing ever. And I would totally know how to fill that out, but I would but I might be on somebody else's bottom five for all the wrong reasons. And I said I get it. Um I think really one of the solutions here. And probably the, the most humane thing to do. Both, and let's think about it through the, the lens of both. Uh, clients need need this work done, and they need they need competent representation. And this is high stakes stuff for clients. We're we're, ha- we're handling them with some of the most important things they're going to confront in their lives. If we have healthier lawyers and happier lawyers, we're going to have clients with better results. So, how do we cut in in a positive way in that dimension? I think that if we invested in destigmatizing, um, seeking help for substance abuse, substance abuse, I'm sorry, uh, for, for, uh, seeking, uh, support for mental health and people over the course of their lives are going to face different challenges with respect to that, different phases of their lives. If we were able to really focus in on normalizing, uh, Giving and seeking help in ways that aren't just like sit through a CLE about lawyer help because you already kind of know how I feel about those sorts of things, but or just having phone numbers to call. Um, there are people out there who are really well intended and really talented, but we just imagine if we took that two billion dollars a year that we're spending in soft resources or in hard resources to take the bar exam and we invested it in promoting the wellness wellness within the profession. We might really protect a lot of clients um, and protect a lot of lawyers and be happier people in general and be a better world. Or we could do that, or we could continue to practice our multi state exam answers, um, which is the best answer. This is a a right answer, but this answer is the best answer. We could be focusing on things like that, or we could be focusing on what really matters. I guess that's what it kind of, you know, a choice that we could collectively decide to make. Of course, it's easier said than done. It's much easier written and submitted through Expresso and done, but that's what I do.
0: (laughs) Well, so David, in closing, I know it's a mug's game to be making predictions, but you've already talked about how the bar exam, for better or for worse, is going to be seeing at least presumably some pretty major changes in in the near future at least in part in response to a lot of criticism that the exam and the people creating the exam have have gotten do you how do you expect it to change do you expect it to change in substantively meaningful ways and to the extent that this is an effort to kind of recuperate the bar exam and the sort of reputation of the bar exam, as it were, uh, how likely do you think it is to be successful?
1: I think that it was astonishing to me how resilient the defense, the institutional defense of the bar exam was nationally in 2020 in the wake of COVID. Um, That there were, you know, you had law firms that were taking a lot of PPP money, on one hand, and then talking about that didn't need it. And then talking about free passes, on the other hand, as if it was some kind of moral crisis that we were moving through. The, the law is, and I mean this not politically, um, the law is a conservative profession. And some of the folks that are the most conservative about it are our are, are are newest grads, um, who have gone through the process and feel that quite rightfully so that they worked really hard to go through the path that was laid out for them. Um, it kind of, I think I, I'm, I'm not optimistic that it's going to change quickly, but I think that if we follow some of the experiments, um, by, by the way, um, Milan Markovic, um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, because I haven't spoken with him in person, but I feel like I know him. He wrote a great paper that showed that uh, diploma privilege in Wisconsin, um, you know, it, essentially works. I think that if we can get more data out there and get more people comfortable with it, um, eventually we can, and if we can pick off some larger States to think about, think about this differently, we might, but it's going to be very, very slow. And I have a lot of, you know, I hear the diploma privilege advocates very loudly. Um, they are being heard. Um, but thinking about this from a detached perspective, and having been involved with the dialogue, and hearing what lawyers are are saying in private, and sometimes they, sometimes they'll come out on Twitter and say it in public. Um, i I think it's going to be slow. I think it's going to be slow, and and it's going to take a lot of work for us to actually ask the profession, "What is it? Do you really? What is it that you want?" Because the next time. You know, we hear people saying we want practice-ready lawyers. What's our answer to them? The answer to them could be, well, what do you want law schools to really be teaching and doing? Um, Because we're incentivized to do something completely different. Um, Maybe you could talk to the, maybe the path is really through the ABA. They've made some strides in, in certain things. Maybe that's, maybe that's the path. But right now, look, it's a business. The bar exam is a business. We have to kind of contend with that. Um, we have to contend with tradition. So there's there's a lot of inertia. And that in 2020 showed how much inertia there is to even reopening the question. There are people who are just shocked that the question was asked. So I decided to ask a different question, which is the title of my paper. Do we need a bar exam for experienced lawyers? Because as Don Draper said in Mad Men, if you don't like what people are saying, change the conversation. So I decided to change the conversation try to move it to the side to try to see if we could get a different conversation going about what the bar exam uh, truly accomplishes. Well, David, thanks
0: so much for coming on the show again. I thought it was a great, provocative and important paper, and I hope it does spark a conversation about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what we want to accomplish as a profession.
1: Well, thank you for having me again, Brian. Um, It was a pleasure and and always uh, a, a joy to talk to you on this podcast.
2: of places for refreshments, taverns and saloons and cabarets. But as you paint the town, don't run a good place down. Remember one good point, don't call it a diver joint, it's called a tap room in Pennsylvania. In Manhattan it's a flush line club, it's just a gin mill in old Chicago, and in London it's a blooming pub. They serve you cocktails in Ritzy Newport and it's boiler makers in Sweet Dunk. But no matter where you are when you stagger from afar, you're just plain old fashioned drunk. A lot of places for me freshmen, taverns and saloons and cabarets. But as you paint the town, don't run a good place down. Remember one good point, don't call it a thyroid joint. It's called a tap room in Pennsylvania. In Manhattan, it's a plush line club. It's just a gin mill in old Chicago. And in London, it's a blooming pub. They serve you cocktails in Ritzy, Newport. And it's Boilermakers in sweet Dunk. But no matter where you are, when you stagger from the bar, you're just plain old-fashioned drunk.